The press played a significant part in the events of Peterloo before, during and after the meeting. As we have seen, the radical Manchester Observer, established only in 1818, had agitated for reform and publicised the meeting. Joseph Johnson, part owner of the Observer, and John Saxton, its chief journalist, had invited Henry Hunt to Manchester and were arrested on the day. The Manchester Chronicle had played its part in rallying the loyalists. Several journalists were present on the hustings alongside Hunt, including Edward Baines Jr. of the Leeds Mercury, John Smith of the Liverpool Mercury, John Tyus of the London Times, and Richard Carlyle, who published the radical Sherwin's Political Register in London. Reports written by Archibald Prentice and John Edward Taylor were dispatched to London on the day of the meeting and appeared in the press the following day. Taylor's report to the Times was particularly influential. This most conservative of newspapers was outraged by the arrest of its own journalist, John Tyus, who was, it protested, as much a Jacobin as Lord Liverpool himself. In the weeks that followed, the Times covered the aftermath of the meeting extensively, repeatedly questioning the legitimacy of the actions of the authorities. The Manchester Observer, coining the phrase Peterloo Massacre, also kept the issue in the public eye in a series of 14 weekly pamphlets. Two reports came out on Saturday the 21st in the Radical Press, one in the Manchester Observer and the other in Carlisle's Political Register. The Manchester Observer Manchester Political Meeting we enter upon the task of detailing the proceedings which took place at the meeting on Monday last, with feelings of the most poignant description. For although four days have elapsed since the tragic occurrence, we find the time much too short to record with correctness the transactions in general, and a month would be insufficient to detail all the individual and truly deplorable cases which have been communicated to our office. For the information of those who do not regularly read the Observer, it may be necessary to state that in order to make the meeting a perfectly legal one, that is, one which even the magistrates themselves could not deem otherwise, the meeting which was to have taken place on the previous Monday was relinquished, and another announced for Monday last, free from the objection which was supposed to exist in the first notice, and from the circumstance of no notice having been taken, that the second was illegal. The most timid were satisfied that all would pass over in profound tranquillity. We must here, however, observe that several gentlemen informed us that the military would most certainly interfere, a declaration which we, in common with 999 in 1,000, treated as the offspring of alarm, undeserving of any notice. The morning was extremely fine and well calculated to produce the attendance of an immense assemblage. So early as ten o'clock everything was in motion, and everyone big with the expectation of an immense and withal peaceful meeting. Nor do we think that one person in ten thousand anticipated the least harm from the reformers, for but few, if any, shops, even in the most public streets, were thoroughly closed and wherever Mr. Hunt made his appearance, he was hailed with acclamations. Mr. Hunt left the residence of Mr. Johnson at Smedley Cottage in an open carriage about two o'clock, in which were also seated Mr. Johnson, Mr. Knight, etc., 
and on the box was seated along with the coachman, a female, bearing a flag which she continually waved as the procession passed along. Wherever the hussars of the populace were met by the residents of the town, and particularly by shopkeepers at their dwellings, with the like demonstration, a spontaneous and universal cry of, We will buy of you, rent the air. The procession came through Shude Hill, Hanging Ditch, Old Millgate, Market Place, St Mary's Gate, Deansgate and Peter Street, to the area appointed for the meeting. The site on which this prodigious assembly was convened was by admeasurement 170 yards by 150, which gives 25,000 yards, exclusive of all the avenues which were filled by the wondering spectators. As nine persons will stand in one superficial square yard, and as the whole of the above space would most undoubtedly have been not only filled but closely filled, had it been either prudent or possible for persons to have existed in such an indissoluble mass, we may fairly reckon, at only six to the yard, that the aggregate number, about half-past one o'clock, would be one hundred and fifty-three thousand. The assemblage was doubtless very imposing, but when silence was commanded, whilst the resolution was put to appoint Mr. Hunt to the chair, the populace were answered by an exhibition of their townsmen's sabres. Even this demonstration of hostility excited no alarm, the spectators conceiving that they were only in readiness to suppress any commotion which might occur, never dreaming that the legal protectors of the public peace would be the first illegally to break it. Yet the calculations of all well-disposed persons were mocked. But before we relate the most wanton, cowardly and bloody attack made by the Manchester and Salford Yeomanry Cavalry and others, which was ever made either in this or any other country, we beg leave again to digress, in order to state some transactions which took place in the house of Mr. Buxton, the rendezvous of the magistrates. The magistrates, with a number of gentlemen of the town, were here in consultation, and the opinion of the magistrates was divided as to the proper mode of proceeding. This difficulty, however, was soon got rid of by thirty civilians, resident gentlemen of Manchester, voluntarily offering to make oath that they conceived the peace of the town was endangered by this peaceful assembly. Mr. Oswald Milne administered the oaths, and Mr. John Bradshaw and Mr. Thomas Watkins, and thirty or forty others, were among those whose fears were thus excited, and to whose praiseworthy conduct the friends of the killed and the wounded may attribute these calamitous events. For it appeared to a few, who were present on this memorable occasion, that the magistrates would not, and durst not, apparently have acted, without this legal cobweb garment to cover their nakedness. However, the whale did not swallow up Jonah with more dexterity than gentlemen swallowed their oaths. No sooner had this thirty sworn and signed the Manchester Magna Charter than the Borough Reeve was called upon to mount his charger and lead on the special constables in the rear of our should-have-been protectors. They were led on by an Irishman, trumpeter to the corps, but the populace were so compact and stood so firm that they could not reach the hustings without halting. Few, if any, of the meeting, 
even yet supposed that this martial display was intended for anything more than securing Mr. Hunt, Johnson, Knight, Saxton and Morehouse, for whom they had warrants. Mr. Hunt was called upon to deliver himself up, which he offered to do to a magistrate, but not to the Manchester Yeomanry Cavalry. A gentleman in the commission presented himself, and Mr. Hunt acknowledged his authority, and departed for the rendezvous of the magistrates. Mr. Johnson and Mr. Saxton were taken direct to the New Bailey prison. Mr. Knight escaped, but was afterwards arrested at his own house, and Mr. Morehouse was taken into custody at the Flying Horse Inn. As soon as Mr. Hunt was secured, followed a scene so truly bloody and horrific that no pen or tongue, were the Earl of Chatham now living, could paint in its true colours. Without reading the riot act, which that despicable sycophant Mr. Aston has the unblushing impudence to assert was read, without the usual notice to disperse, if it was read, and without ceremony, did they dash in upon this peaceable and defenceless multitude. So indiscriminate was the attack that these lambs literally put to death one of the special constables and wounded many more. So eager did they appear to display their zeal in the preservation of the peace and to come in contact with unarmed men and defenceless women. A most terrific shriek now rent the air. We may add, hundreds were thrown down, produced by their anxiety to get out of the crowd. Very many were necessarily ridden over in consequence, as if they were eager to give a practical proof of the ardency of their courage, but which, by the by, was not previously to these exploits, in the estimation of many of the Waterloo kind. Had the military only attacked robust men, only wounded those who had offered them insult, only dealt out death and destruction with something like discrimination, much less infamy would have been their lot. But it is notorious that some of our gentlemen, who shall be nameless, not only struck the quickest, but the heaviest on those who were the most defenceless. The women seemed to be the special objects of the rage of these bastard soldiers. In some narrow passes, particularly among some oak trees, near the Quakers' meeting-house, many were thrown down, which impeded the progress of the flying multitude. From all the inquiries we can make, there appears to be five or six dead, as many mortally wounded, and not less than three hundred severely and slightly wounded. The tragic relation is much heightened from the universal conviction that all the blood which has been spilled has been most wantonly and unnecessarily spilled. We do not think, nay, we are quite confident, that out of a population of 120,000 inhabitants, and as many strangers in addition, that a hundred persons could be found who could solemnly affirm it as their opinion that there was any intention on the part of the reformers to commit the slightest breach of the peace, nor five who would make oath that the meeting would not have been dispersed by the troops from the barracks, had the riot act been read and had the execution of the magistrate's order been confided to them after the usual time allowed by law for dispersion had elapsed, without the least injury to any individual. The affidavit to which the gentlemen affixed their names was drawn up, not at Mr. Buxton's house, the magistrate's rendezvous, but somewhere or other before they came to the place of meeting. 
how penetrating the judgment that could thus discern treason in embryo. We should ill discharge our duty if we did not notice the exemplary conduct of the troops from the barracks. Every one with whom we have conversed concur in applauding their humane conduct. We do not think, and we pronounce our opinion on the concurrent testimony of all we have conversed with, that one was severely wounded by these truly good soldiers. Mr. Hunt was conducted to the rendezvous. His arrival was greeted with the shouts of some, and with brutal joy by others. He only asked for a glass of water, which a brute and a great constable actually denied him. But a gentleman observed he had sufficient authority in that house to say he should have a glass of water, which was immediately brought. Mr. Hunt then said, pointing to Mr. Nadine, that brute, it seems, would not permit an exhausted man to have a drop of water. This silenced the deputy. A coach was now called for to convey Mr. Hunt to the new bailey. Another wretch now bawled out, Let him walk! However, as no coach was in attendance, Mr. Marriott, the magistrate, offered him his protection, and even that was hardly sufficient to keep him from the fury of those through whom he had to pass, viz., the special constables. He was lodged in the new bailey, where he yet remains with the other gentlemen, as it now appears upon a childish charge, made by a Mr. Richard Owen and others, upon oath, that they conceived it to be necessary to the peace of the town, that the meeting should be dispersed, and that the parties before mentioned should be apprehended. If this is law, it is high time to have it altered, for it appears that thirty gentlemen, supposing these proceedings legal, can at any time, if they can find magistrates timid, and as foolish as themselves, and which there can be no doubt, prevent Englishmen from assembling, and from consulting on the best means to have their crying grievances redressed. But it is not law, it is not reasonable, it is not that which will be much longer endured. Are the people, a well-known, industrious, and yet a starving people, to be told when they ask for bread that they shall only have a bullet or a sabre? Or if they ask for constitutional liberty, are they to be immured in a jail? Yes, all this, if some men must govern. But we feel satisfied that Lord Sidmouth would never authorise any proceedings so flagrantly opposed to law, justice and humanity. And we are more confirmed in this opinion because bail has been demanded, for merely what they choose to call a misdemeanour. It is rumoured, and we believe it correct, that orders have been sent to an eminent artist for a design to be engraved for a medal in commemoration of Peterloo victory. Books will be opened by subscription at the Observer Office in aid of this patriotic design, and we have no doubt but that it will be liberally supported. We understand that the reformers mean to retaliate in a peaceably yet effectual way upon some of our townsmen. If reports be correct, some individual manufacturer is to be selected out who has made himself busy on this occasion, and for whom no man will in future weave on any terms whatever, and thus bring these gentlemen at least to reflection. In the country it is intended to desert all shopkeepers and others who are not only passive, but all who are opposed to reform. The poor are thus driven to measures eminently calculated for their protection, 
the scheme will answer. Some of our police officers and soldiers, accompanied by Mr. Richards of the Talbot Inn, and others, entered, it is said, the room where the reformers intended to have dined on Monday, and where they found some roast beef, which they ventured to eat, and wonderful to tell, not one of them were poisoned. Reformers' beef is, it appears, good when it comes cheap. We hear it is intended to institute legal proceedings against these marauders, and bring their infamous conduct before a jury of our countrymen, as soon as the proper evidence can be brought forward. They were not content with stuffing their ungodly maws with what was not their own, but committed a variety of depredations in the place. In the evening of Monday, many of the constables burnt their staffs, and many more are laid up of nervous fevers, and we are sorry to hear that there is no probability of their recovery whilst the present commotion exists. Mr. Murray, the gingerbread maker, has certainly been most seriously injured. This active constable has made himself obnoxious by the diligent discharge of his duty, which is always the case in every situation where the duties of those situations are improperly discharged. Mr. Murray, then, not wishing to rely upon common report, repaired to White Moss, about five miles distant from Manchester, accompanied by a beadle or two, to make observations on those who were training. He was soon recognised as no reformer, and as soon pinioned by a few men, and corrected for his heinous offences without mercy. Not contented to give him a common castigation, he was made to recant his former opinions. He begged pardon on his bare knees, we understand he made his obeisance no less than ten times, and in this prostrate condition promised, on his word, to be good for the future, and on this solemn promise he was suffered to depart. After his arrival at home, he was visited by no less than four surgeons, who declared that his brain was not affected. The skull, it seems, was proof, even to clogs. He is now convalescent. Richard Carlyle had made a name for himself in London by distributing Thomas Paine's The Rights of Man, a banned work for which Paine had been convicted in absentia of seditious libel against the Crown. Carlyle escaped arrest on the hustings at St. Peter's Field, and secretly returned to London, where he published his account of the meeting in the form of an audacious letter to Lord Sidmouth. Carlyle's political register was promptly closed down by the authorities, in October 1819, Carlyle was convicted of seditious libel and blasphemy, and sentenced to three years' imprisonment. Horrid Massacre at Manchester It is impossible to find words to express the horror which every man must feel at the proceedings of the agents of the Boroughmongers on Monday last at Manchester. It is out of the pale of words to describe the abhorrence which every true Englishman must feel towards the abettors and the actors in that murderous scene. All prospect of reconciliation must now be considered as being effectually destroyed, and the people have now no resource left but to arm themselves immediately for the recovery of their rights and the defence of their persons, or patiently to submit to the most unconditional slavery. The government has long been a military despotism in a theoretical point of view, it is now become so in practice, and the murders at Manchester are but the first fruits of its principles. 
It is impossible to say what will be the result of the impending contest, but it may with safety be said that neither this nor any other country ever remained long in such a condition without a revolution. The idea of subduing the people can be entertained by no man of sense, and the idea of accommodating matters is quite as ridiculous. The Rubicon is past. The blood of the murdered, martyred heroes, who perished at Manchester, cries aloud for justice and vengeance. The man who could for a moment think of forgiving such injuries as this would deserve the slavery or slaughter with which we are all threatened. But it is useless to waste words on a subject where all must feel alike. It is an insult to the reader to argue in a case where every man is convinced. Neither can it be necessary to say anything to stimulate the inhabitants of Manchester and the neighbourhood to a trial of their last and only mode of obtaining their liberties. Had the agents of the Boroughmongers suffered the meeting to proceed, there is no doubt but it would have terminated peaceably. The people showed no disposition to fight, but what their disposition may be now is a very different question. Their blood has bathed the swords of their enemies. Men, women, and children have been wantonly and deliberately murdered, and accursed be the man who would suffer these deeds to go unrevenged. The following letter of Mr. Carlyle to Lord Sidmouth contains a full and true account of these horrid proceedings. Mr. Carlyle accompanied Mr. Hunt from Smedley Cottage to the meeting, and he remained on the hustings until that gentleman and several others were taken into custody. The letter will therefore be read with great interest. A letter to Lord Sidmouth, Secretary of State for the Home Department, on the conduct of the magisterial and yeomanry assassins of Manchester, on the 16th of August, 1819. London, August the 18th, 1819. My Lord, as a spectator of the horrid proceedings of Monday last at Manchester, I feel it my duty to give the public a narrative of those proceedings through the medium of a letter addressed to you, who ought to be the conservator of the public peace. My motives for doing this are twofold. The first is to call on you, as Secretary of State for the Home Department, to cause the magistrates of Manchester and yeomanry cavalry acting under their direction to be brought to the bar of public justice for the unprovoked slaughter of the peaceable and distressed inhabitants of that place and neighbourhood, whilst legally exercising their rights in public meeting assembled. For, unless the administration of affairs in the governmental department of the country feel it their duty immediately to take this step, the people have no alternative but to identify the ministers in the metropolis with the magistrates of Manchester, as having conjointly violated and subverted that known and admitted law of the country which countenances the meeting of popular assemblies for a discussion of the best means to obtain a redress of their grievances. And secondly, in case of the default of the existing government to give satisfaction, to the full extent of their means and power, to the mangled and suffering, and to the friends of the murdered inhabitants of Manchester, the people, not only of Manchester, but of the whole country are in duty bound, and by the laws of nature imperatively called upon, to provide themselves with arms, and to hold their public meetings with arms in their hands, to defend themselves against the attacks of similar assassins acting in the true Castlereagh character. The safety of the people is not now the supreme law. 
the security of the corrupt boroughmongers and their dependents can only be perceived to be the object of the existing administration where my lord sidmouth where are now to be found the assassins with their daggers let us hear no more of the assassinal intentions of the advocates for reforming your corrupt system of government you have used every means within your reach to urge the reformers to the use of the dagger they have been too prudent and you no longer able to resist their reasonable demands by reasonable argument have thrown off your mask and set the first example of shedding blood the people have no alternative but immediately to prepare for a retaliation the noble spirit and attitude displayed by the reformers of manchester on monday can never be annihilated and it is within probability that before this letter goes to the press they will return to the attack whatever means they resort to at such a moment as the present they will be justified in the laws having been violated by those who profess to support them in an unprovoked attack on a peaceable and unoffending people in public meeting assembled that people are no longer bound to deny themselves a mode of defence by respecting and adhering to those laws but if they value liberty or independence they will immediately rid themselves of those who not only have driven themselves to starvation and desperation but now goad them to destruction i shall now proceed to give your lordship a narrative of the proceedings at the meeting which as far as i could collect from my situation i will vouch for its authenticity about eleven o'clock the people began to assemble around the house of mr johnson at smedley cottage where mr hunt had taken up his residence about twelve mr hunt and his friends entered the barouche they had not proceeded far when they were met by the committee of the female reform society one of whom an interesting-looking woman bore a standard on which was painted a female holding in her hand a flag surmounted with the cap of liberty whilst she trod underfoot an emblem of corruption on which was inscribed that word she was requested to take a seat on the box of the carriage the most appropriate one which she boldly and immediately acquiesced in and continued waving her flag and handkerchief until she reached the hustings where she took her stand on the right corner in front the remainder of the committee followed the carriage in procession and mounted the hustings when they reached them on leaving smedley cottage bodies of men were seen at a distance marching in regular and military order with music and colours different flags were fallen in with on the road with various mottoes such as no corn laws liberty or death taxation without representation is tyranny we will have liberty the flag used by the friends of mr hunt at the general election for westminster and various others many of which were surmounted with caps of liberty the scene of cheering was never before equalled females from the age of twelve to eighty were seen cheering with their caps in their hand and their hair in consequence dishevelled the whole scene exceeded the power of description in passing through the streets to the place of meeting the crowd became so great that it was with difficulty the carriage could be moved along information was brought to mr hunt that st peter's field was already filled and that no less than three hundred thousand people were assembled in and about the intended spot of meeting as the carriage moved along and reached the shops and warehouse of mr johnson of smedley three times three were given also at the police office and at the exchange the procession arrived at the place of destination about one o'clock 
Mr. Hunt expressed his disapprobation of the hustings, and was fearful that some accident would arise from them. After some hesitation he ascended, and the proposition for his being chairman being moved by Mr. Johnson it was carried by acclamations. Mr. Hunt began his discourse by thanking them for the favour conferred on him, and made some ironical observations on the conduct of the magistrates, when a cart, which evidently took its direction from that part of the field where the police and magistrates were assembled in a house, was moved through the middle of the field, to the great annoyance and danger of the assembled people, who quietly endeavoured to make way for its procedure. The cart had no sooner made its way through, when the yeomanry cavalry made their appearance, from the same quarter as the cart had gone out. They galloped furiously round the field, going over every person who could not get out of their way, to the spot where the police were fixed, and after a moment's pause they received the cheers of the police as the signal for attack. The meeting, at the entrance of the cavalry, and from the commencement of business, was one of the most calm and orderly I have ever witnessed. Hilarity was seen on the countenances of all, whilst the female reformers crowned the assemblage with a grace and excited a feeling particularly interesting. The yeomanry cavalry made their charge with the most infuriate frenzy. They cut down men, women and children indiscriminately, and appeared to have commenced a premeditated attack with the most insatiable thirst for blood and destruction. They merit a medallion, on one side of which should be inscribed the Slaughtermen of Manchester and a reverse bearing a description of their slaughter of defenceless men, women, and children, unprovoked and unnecessary. As a proof of premeditated murder on the part of the magistrates, every stone was gathered from the ground on the Friday and Saturday previous to the meeting, by scavengers sent there by the express command of the magistrates, that the populace might be rendered more defenceless. This is the social order system which we are exhorted by royal proclamations, to rally round and support. These are the modes of reasoning adopted by villainy and power. I can assure you, my lord, that the only painful feeling I felt was to see so many thousands of resolute and determined friends of freedom without the means of self-defence. The courier has this evening claimed the gratitude of the reformers towards the amiable Mr. Nadin, who, it asserts, saved the life of Mr. Hunt from the fury and vengeance of the yeomanry butchers. That these butchers were ready and willing to cut him to pieces, there is no doubt. But in return let me remind the editor of the Courier that nothing but the uniform and steady determination of Mr. Hunt to use no other weapons than our oppressive legislators themselves have sanctioned, nor to encourage the use of any other weapons where he has had any influence, could have saved the lives of these yeomanry and police from a people goaded to desperation by a violent and outrageous attack on their lives. The people of Lancashire, Cheshire, and Yorkshire are fully prepared to assert their rights, either by argumentative reasoning or open combat. Neither will the desperate schemes of a castlery repeated foil them. Mr. Hunt and the people about him stood firm, and began to cheer the military on their approach to the ground, until they were within arm's length, and cutting their way with their sabres. I appealed to the females on their fear of the approach of the military, and found them the last to display an alarm. The police were as expert in applying their clubs to the heads and shoulders of the people as the cavalry their sabres, and there was no alternative but to run the gauntlet through the one or the other. 
the brutality of the police equalled in ferociousness the massacre of the yeomanry cavalry. A better character has been given to the regular troops for their endeavours to disperse the people without wounding or otherwise injuring them. The women appear to have been the particular objects of the fury of the cavalry assassins. One woman, who was near the spot where I stood, and who held an infant in her arms, was sabred over the head, and her tender offspring drenched in its mother's blood. Another was actually stabbed in the neck with the point of the sabre, which must have been a deliberate attempt on the part of the military assassin. Some were sabred in the breast. So inhuman, indiscriminate, and fiendlike was the conduct of the Manchester Yeomanry Cavalry. This, my lord, is but a faint picture of what really occurred. There are facts and particulars that came under my own sight and cognizance and I have no hesitation in saying that if the inhabitants of Manchester cannot resent this massacre of their peaceable inhabitants by retaliating on the yeomanry cavalry and police, collectively, they are called on by the laws of nature, by the love of their country, their firesides and families, to retaliate on them individually. And again, my lord, if the administration of the government, of which you are a member, cannot support itself without violating the laws and compact between the king and people, in an unprovoked and unrelenting massacre of the latter, you had far better retire, and not wait to be driven. It will be in vain, my lord, to attempt to palliate this circumstance by exaggerated statements and falsehoods. The many thousand witnesses of this tragic event will proclaim it as it happened. Those who have hitherto opposed the demand for reform are now heard to condemn this act, and must awake from the delusion that has too long prevailed over them. The present is an important crisis for England. A reform, or despotism, must immediately follow. But I, my lord, who witnessed the attack of the bloodhounds on the inhabitants of Manchester and its vicinity, do feel a confidence from the calm and resolute conduct of that meeting, that despotism and not reform will be crushed. The people were taken by surprise. When the sabres began to fall on them, they were astonished at the uncalled-for and wanton attack. I, who felt confident of the legality of the proceedings of the meeting, did not expect that any authority would, in this country, have been so far abused as to exceed in atrocity the caprice of a Ferdinand of Spain, a day of Algiers, or a grand seigneur of Turkey. When I saw these yeomanry cavalry gallop round and through the meeting, I had no other idea than that the object of the magistrates was to impress the people with an awe, and to endeavour to terrify them, and to prevent the proceedings of the meeting by exhibiting the military to its view. But they soon found this would not do, as the people, both men and women, kept cheering until they began to feel their sabres. After these yeomanry cavalry, which belonged to Cheshire and Manchester, had performed this grand achievement of attacking by surprise an unarmed assemblage of people and dispersing them. They were not content, but persisted in riding after and cutting down those who were flying from them. One man, who dropped his hat in his flight, stooped to pick it up, and received a sabre-wound in the calf of one leg, whilst the other was dreadfully bruised by the horse trampling on it. I will now, my lord, quit the dreadful scene of St. Peter's Field, and examine the conduct of the police and yeomanry cavalry in and about the streets of Manchester. Intoxicated with the idea of having dispersed so great an assemblage of persons, they began to increase that intoxication by the use of strong liquors, and, taking them in the aggregate, they were evidently in a state of inebriation. 
A blacksmith, who from his appearance had just quitted his work, was standing in the course of the afternoon at the corner of a street, in all his working habiliments. A special constable comes up to him and orders him to walk away. The blacksmith, seeing no cause for it, refuses. The constable, without ceremony, draws his staff from his pocket and strikes him over his head. This was intolerable. The blacksmith struck him down with his fist, and a crowd collecting, he received that treatment which he justly merited, in a town where law and justice were dispensed with, by those whose duty it is to enforce them for the protection of those who are under their care. Another instance, equally disgraceful to the instigator, occurred in the neighbourhood of New Cross, just before dusk. A young man who was one of the yeomanry cavalry called on a Mr. Tate in that neighbourhood and seeing from the window a number of persons collected on that spot, he imprudently, and with an air of derision and defiance, took out of his pocket a flag that had got into his possession in St. Peter's Field, and shook it from the window before the assembled people. This became the signal for attack. The windows of the house were immediately demolished, and the calling of the military to this spot caused the loss of life to eight or ten persons one of whom was a mere passer-by, and was shot in the head at a distance of five hundred yards from the scene of action. At this spot a woman was also shot dead. The conduct both of the yeomanry cavalry and police was one of the most ruffian-like kind. The military always preceded the police, which is contrary to the known and established laws of this country. The advocates of a reform in the Commons House of Parliament must now consider themselves as placed out of the pale of the law. A war was declared on them by the late royal proclamation, which has been enforced by the magistrates of Manchester, and the reformers have no alternative but to make it a trial of strength. They have no man to advocate their cause among the existing authorities. There is not a man in the present Boroughmonger's House of Commons that is bold enough to be honest, nor honest enough to be bold. There is not a man that ventures to rise and tell them of what they are composed. We can then have no hope left by an appeal to that house, nor by an exposition of its character and composition. We must therefore appeal to those weapons left in the hands of the oppressed, to resist the oppressor. The executive has denounced the demand for reform, and has thrown itself into the arms of the boroughmongers. The House of Lords has not pronounced its determination collectively, but when we know that the majority of the Commons are produced by its members, we are justified in the inference that it will combine with the Executive to protect its own offspring. And now, my Lord, since a partial triumph has been gained over the Reformers by dispersing them, unarmed in a public meeting, let us examine what would have been the consequences if the dispositions of the reformers had been so very violent as they have been represented to be. In the first place, they would not have stood and cheered the military until their sabres began to fall on them, but would have been silent, and sought immediately for the best means of defence. What if they had fallen back into the streets, and had filled the houses, and there sought weapons for attack and defence? They would have annihilated every aggressor in a few hours, whilst they themselves would have suffered little or no loss. In a house an unarmed man will find better means for attack and defence than half a dozen armed in the streets. Let us hear no more charges of violence or disorder against the advocates of reform, but be pleased, my lord, to take them into your custody, and confer them on the magistrates of Manchester and other places. I shall anxiously wait, my lord, to see whether in the executive and administration of the present government there is sufficient respect for the laws and justice to enforce them against the magistrates of Manchester. 
or whether the executive and administration will make the cause of the magistrates of Manchester their cause. In either case, my lord, as an individual living in a country where the laws will not protect the subject, I shall feel it my duty to make the best preparation for the defence of myself, family and property against the attack of a magistrate, police officer, or a troop of yeomanry cavalry who begin to show a contempt for those laws which they are commissioned to respect and enforce. Your Lordship's fellow-citizen, R. Carlyle. So God bless Henry Hunt, me boys, with Henry Hunt we'll go. We'll mount the cap of liberty in spite of Nady Joe.